God doesn't fail. No, he don't. He don't do it. He can't fail. He can't. He cannot. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Mm. Mm. Father, we're so grateful. Yes, God. So grateful. Just as we sing that and we think of all you've done, our mind can't be full enough, man, of your goodness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Well, good morning, Strong Tower. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning with you. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, or if you want to follow on the screen behind me. Again, if you're our guest today, we want to welcome you. We're glad you could be with us this morning. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to, to meet our team or, or myself, we would love to meet afterwards. If you want to stick around, we would love to chat and get to know you a little bit. Mark chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. We're going to look at verses 32 to 42. 32 to 42. Hear the reading of God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, the way of prayer, the way of prayer. Let's pray again before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. And God, we have your word in our life as testimony to the fact that you have not forgotten us. You have not ignored us. You have not abandoned us. You are here present in your word speaking to us. And so God, we pray that your Holy Spirit today would speak to us to transform our hearts, transform our minds, transform our whole selves, that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 2017, a Turkish soccer fan would not be stopped. His name, this 37-year-old man, was Ali Damikala, I think is how you say his name. But he was a fan of, of his soccer club, a major fan of his soccer club, but got banned from the stadium because he had a, a slight run-in with the police, if you will. 
he was at the stadium and something happened and, and I'm not sure of all the details, but they decided because of this run-in with the police, they were going to kick him out of the stadium, never to come back. So they had a big rivalry game coming up and he decided he had to be present for the game. He couldn't miss his favorite soccer team playing in this important rivalry game, so he had to get creative. He had to figure out, how can I make sure I'm at the game even though I'm banned from the stadium now? And so he got creative, and he went down, and he rented a crane. He rented a crane for $50, and he brought the crane to the stadium, parked it right outside the walls of the stadium, lifted the crane above the walls of the stadium, and watched the game. He lifted the crane so high that everyone in the stadium could see him now. And he's up on the crane dancing and cheering and leading the crowds in this chant. And, and so everybody's celebrating, excited. And you could go on YouTube and watch the video. It's him dancing on the crane. And everyone's so excited to see him because they knew exactly who this guy was. He was famous for being sold out as a fan. And they tried to ban him from the stadium, but he was back. Yet he came to the stadium and, you know, he's not in it. He's outside the stadium. And so he's so high up, he could barely see what's happening in the game. He could kind of see the movement of the players, but he can't really see the ball. He could tell that there's players on the field, but he can't see their names on their shirts. He can't see their number. And he can hear people cheering, but he's not exactly sure why they're cheering and what's going on in the game because he's so far away, so high up, he's really not there. He's present, but he's not present. And of course, later on, shortly after everyone saw him and started cheering, the police show up and make him take down his crane and send him home. But this man who got creative, who became so in, in, in intense that I, I have to be at the place, still couldn't be in it. He was present, but he was absent. And that, that kind of tension, I want to say, is, is similar to the tension you might be feeling in your prayer life. There, there's this tension where you feel like you're present with God, you're, you're there in the, in the vicinity of what God is doing and who He is, but you feel like you're still absent. You feel like there's some distance between you and God where, where you maybe hear other people cheering about God. Maybe they're singing the songs on Sunday and, and they're telling you about what they're, uh, they're reading in the Bible and they're excited about God and you, you experience their excitement. But you don't experience your own excitement. You, you're feeling like there, there's some kind of gap in between me and God. There's some kind of distance between me and God. Have you ever felt that way before? Maybe I'm just alone, but, but there's these times where you go through maybe a season, maybe it's a few days, maybe it's a few weeks, maybe it's months or even years where you go through a time where there's a distance between you and God that it just doesn't seem like it's connecting. It doesn't seem like there's a closeness there. And I'll tell you, prayer is one of the strangest things in life. There's so many mysteries to prayer. There's so many unanswered questions. And when you start to dive deeply into prayer, all these feelings come up and all these questions and this confusion about how does this thing actually work where I'm supposed to be connecting with a God that I can't even see. Prayer can be hard. 
But what does Jesus teach us about prayer? This is where I want us to continue our series today in the Gospel of Mark called The Way. And Mark is really outlining for us in the Gospel the story of Jesus' life in two parts. So the first part of the Gospel of Mark is all about who Jesus is. You might call that the person of Christ. And then the second part of Mark's Gospel is all about what Jesus came to do. So you might call that Jesus' work. So you've got the first half of Mark is the person of Christ. The second half of Mark is about Jesus' work, what he came to do. And now we're getting to the end of Mark's gospel, and we're getting deep into the work of Jesus. And now we're in the last week of his life, and Jesus in this scene is starting to feel the pressure of his purpose. Jesus is starting to get to the point where he's about to accomplish what he came to accomplish, but as he gets closer and closer to that moment, he starts to feel the pressure. And when Jesus starts to feel pressure, he prays. This is what's fascinating in Mark's gospel. Mark shows Jesus praying all the time, and this is one of those key moments in Mark's gospel where you see the more Jesus gets pressured, he starts to open up in his prayer life. And you get just a glimpse into Jesus' prayer life, and you see this incredible intimacy. And it helps us understand how does prayer actually work. And so just for the next few moments as we're together, I want to look at how Jesus shows us the way of prayer here. And so first, we're going to look at the context. If you're taking notes today, the first point is the context of prayer. The context of prayer. Look at me at verse 32. Look at what it says. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, Gethsemane, pause there for a second. Gethsemane was this well-known garden. Right, it's on the eastern side of Jerusalem, right at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And it was a garden known for these ancient olive trees. And these ancient olive trees would often be pressed for their olive oil, right? And so literally the, the name Gethsemane means the, the pressing. It's, it's the place of pressing. And so it's a perfect scene for Jesus as he comes to the end of his life here on earth. And, and Jesus is feeling the pressure of his purpose. He's starting to feel pressed, He's starting to feel squeezed. He's starting to feel like his whole world is caving in and, and he's feeling emotions that, that maybe many of us have felt on some level. I mean, listen to how Mark describes this intense pressure. He says about the state of Jesus' soul, he says he was greatly distressed. This word means an intense emotional state of surprise or alarm. Jesus is alarmed. Jesus is shocked. And then Mark says that he also feels troubled. The, the, the word here means to feel an overwhelming sense of anxiety. An overwhelming sense of anxiety, like there's just so much I'm worried about, I can't control it. It's, it's overwhelming, this, this, this wave of anxiety he's feeling. And then Jesus says about himself to his disciples, in his own words, he says, I'm very sorrowful even to death. I mean, one translator puts it like this, my heart is ready to break with grief. Do you hear that? This is Jesus we're talking about. I mean, Mark, Mark is showing us that Jesus is not some plastic savior, right? Jesus is not somebody who doesn't feel. In fact, he feels very greatly. 
Jesus is grieving. Jesus is mourning. Jesus is, is shocked at the pain that's, that he's experiencing. And he's alarmed at what he's, he's feeling. He's worrying. He's grieving. And here's the thing. What does Jesus do with all those painful emotions? He prays. Isn't that fascinating? He says to the disciples as he's feeling this, this disturbing anxiety and sorrow that makes him want to die. He says, sit here while I go pray. See, prayer, listen, prayer grows best in pain. In pain. You may have heard of uh, Biosphere 2. It opened in 1991 as this uh, scientific research center out in Arizona. And uh, it was created as this place that would be kind of a a self-contained environment where they could recreate uh, places on earth that you could do then research, right? And so they had these self-contained areas. They had a desert. They had a rainforest. They had, I think, even an artificial ocean. And so they tried to recreate these different environments that you would find on earth. And uh, one of the things that they could never figure out how to recreate, as far as I know, was wind. And what's fascinating is, at first, as they, they have these environments, trees started to grow Fabulous, because I mean, they're just so fast and, and, and beautiful, and, and they're growing, and, and everyone's thinking, wow, this is incredible, because it's all in a bubble, right? It's this self-contained bubble, and so they're, they're researching these trees that are growing so fast, but then they realize something. As soon as the trees got to full maturity and they got high enough, they would literally just fall over. Some of the trees even snapped, and you're trying to think, what in the world's going on? And then researchers realize that it's because they didn't have any wind in this self-contained bubble that they had created. And they started to realize the way that trees grow, they need the wind to create hard wood. Because the struggle with the wind is what actually creates the strength in the wood for the tree to hold itself up. In other words, right, it couldn't have any strength because there was no struggle. Struggle grows in strength. Pain, listen to this, pain grows in our prayer life. Pain, it, or pain grows our prayer life. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how, about how you like this, but I hate that that's true. I mean, I would much rather God say, the truth is your prayer life is going to grow when all your bills are paid. Your, your prayer life is going to grow when all your children are listening at all the moments of your life. The truth is your prayer life is going to grow when there's no conflict at your workplace. Right? You, you, you want God to say the way your prayer life is going to work is that it's going to get better as your circumstances get better. But that's never the way it works. The way it works is your prayer life gets better when your pain grows you. Howard Thurman said it like this once. He said, pain has a ministry. I love that. Pain has a ministry. And so pain ministers to you. And specifically, pain ministers to your prayer life. And this is why we, we have to, in our pain, as pain comes into our life, and as we experience these emotions that Jesus is feeling, you have to be honest and aware of those emotions. Right? What Jesus is modeling for us right here is he is saying it's okay to not be okay. Jesus is showing us that the perfect son of God is saying, I am so sorrowful, I feel like I'm going to die. I'm so anxious and overwhelmed, I don't know what to do, I'm panicking. This is what Jesus is feeling. 
and he's honest about it. See, part of it, we, we have to be honest about the shame that we're feeling over what happened in our past. We have to be honest about the, the devastation that's happened in our, our marriage that's falling apart. We have to be honest about the guilt we're feeling over the sin that, that just continues to nag us and, and overwhelm us. We have to be honest about the fears and, and anxieties that we're feeling as we come against financial crisis. What, whatever it is in your life, I don't know what the pain is that you're experiencing, but what Jesus is showing us right here is, first of all, you have to be honest. But then what, what do you do with your pain? How, how do you pray your pain? We lament. We lament. Dr. Soong Chan Ra, he, he defines lament like this. He says, lament is honesty before God and each other. You catch that? Lament is honesty before God and each other. Another word, a way of putting that, lament is this, this lost art of, of taking your pain to God in prayer. You're taking what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, and you're being honest and aware about it, and you're saying, this is how I'm feeling, God. Right? Lament sounds like this. God, I don't know why you're doing this with my kids, but, but I'm angry about it. I'm frustrated about it. I, I don't understand how this makes sense, God. How could you let this happen in my life? You hear that? Have you ever read the Psalms? That's how the Psalms pray. They just tell God, I, I'm angry about what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. This doesn't make sense. When, when are you going to remember me, God? But here's the thing about lamenting. Lamenting always keeps yourself under God, never over God. This is the difference between grumbling and lamenting. Grumbling is I put myself above God and now I'm judging God for what he's doing. Lamenting is saying I'm putting myself under God and I'm telling him how I feel. You see the difference? Grumbling is this godless lament. You, you may not even go to God at all. You probably just go complain to somebody else or you go complain to your spouse or you go talk to somebody at your job, whatever it is, but you're grumbling and complaining because God is not even in the picture. But lamenting, lamenting knows that the safest place for your pain is with your heavenly father. The safest place to, to handle your pain is to say, God, here it is. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how this makes sense in what you're doing in my life, but I'm bringing it to you because I know it's safe with you. You hear that? That's what lamenting is. And, and often, let me tell you, the, the fear of lament for many of us is that God won't love us if we're that honest. I'm convinced that, the, the, you know, for, for many of us, the, the one area of our life that we probably struggle with legalism the most is prayer. And what I mean by that is, is many of us were, were raised in the church, or maybe you, you came to faith later in life, and, and, and whatever uh, church you came to, there's kind of this facade of performance, where you, the, the expectation is you have to perform good enough for God, and when you perform for God, God performs for you. And we live our prayer lives like that, so we're afraid to be honest with God because if I'm honest with God about how angry I am or how sad I am or how anxious I am, then he might get angry at me and make it worse. So I might as well keep my laments from God because I don't want things to get worse. But can I tell you something? God already knows. Like, lament is not for God. L lament is for us. 
Lament is for us to say that this is part of my own healing and my own prayer life that I need to get this out of me so I can be honest with my God. That's what God is inviting you into. He's saying, I'm inviting you to be honest because this is the safe place. You, you are my child. We'll get to that in a second. But you can be honest. You can be honest. And take your pain to him. But as you bring your pain to God in prayer, there's this mystery that emerges. And this is the second point, the mystery of prayer. Look at verse 35. It goes on like this. And going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Amazingly, Jesus shows his humanity here again. Jesus is so exhausted here, right? He, he tells the disciples to go sit over there while I go pray. He goes off to pray by himself, and when he gets there, he's so exhausted. Mark says he just collapses on the ground. He just collapses on the ground into his father's lap and just says, here is how I'm feeling. And, the, and you see the tension right away. First out of his mouth, what he says is, if it were possible, remove this. Right? He's saying, God, I, I know that this was the plan, that we're going to go through this process, and I'm going to save them by being on the cross, but if it's possible, if there's any other way we could get this done, this redemption you've called me to, let's do it. I mean, this, this is Jesus being completely honest and intimate with his Father. He's saying this cup of wrath that he's about to experience, this cup that's going to be poured on him, if there's some other way, Let's make a way. I mean, he's pleading with his father. He's pleading with his father to intervene in the midst of his pain, but then enters the tension. The ESV translates it, yet. But, but I like the old King James here, because it, it, it kind of captures the contrast here. The old King James says, nevertheless. Nevertheless. It just sounds better than yet. Nevertheless. What does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Right? I love this because Jesus is saying, on the one hand, I, here's what I want. Here's what I'm feeling. Here, here's what I'm exhausted by. God, I want you to intervene. I want you to change it. I want you to do it. But nevertheless, I'm going to do what you say. See, there's this tension here where Jesus is, is wrestling in his laments. Jesus is wrestling, lamenting, feeling overwhelmed, feeling anxious, feeling these, uh, these painful experiences, and yet he says, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Because as horrible as the cup will be, Jesus knows his immediate desire to be spared must bow before his ultimate desire to spare us. Now what, this is it. What, what allows Jesus to live in that tension? Because he's boldly asking, but he's also humbly surrendering. What allows him to do that? It's right here in the text. The first two words out of his mouth, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Jesus is praying the way he told us to pray. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus told the disciples, this is how you ought to pray. Start with the relationship that you have with your Father. But Jesus takes it one step further, and he uses this very intimate language. He says to God, Abba. 
I mean, this, this is the word that the scholars have said is, is really a family word. It's the kind of word you would use only in the house, with your intimate relationships in the household. In fact, there's no evidence in Jewish uh, ancient literature that anyone before Jesus ever used this word to address God. Jesus was the first. It was actually forbidden in some of the rabbinical writings that they said this is too familiar. This, this is too common to use this language with God. If you were going to use that language, it would desecrate the name of God. So why does Jesus use this name? Because in, in, in his darkest hour, this is, this is what he's saying, in his darkest hour, he's learning how to ask boldly and surrender humbly. And to do that, he needs intimacy. See, prayer is the mystery of intimacy. It's this mystery of intimacy where prayer, if it's intimate enough, it's going to ask boldly. It's going to ask boldly because, listen, you're so convinced of God's goodness. You're so convinced of God's goodness that you can ask for anything. I mean, think about what Jesus is asking. How about we change the plans that we've made from eternity? I mean, Jesus is asking the impossible Jesus is asking the ridiculous, and yet Jesus knows that his father loves him so much that he should ask anyways. He's going to ask him for the impossible. He's going to ask him for what seems ridiculous because he knows that his father just might do it because he loves him that much. Think about that. Some of us, you or we, don't ask God for much at all. Because we've, we've, already made up our, we've, already, we've already made up God's mind for him. Have you ever done that before? You catch yourself praying and you, and you think, you know what, I've been praying for this for a while. I'm just going to stop. Because God clearly doesn't care about this anymore or didn't care about it or whatever. And, and you've already decided, or maybe you never prayed for something because you decided ahead of time, God doesn't want that. I mean, listen to me. That is not Intimacy. Childlike intimacy says, nothing's off the table. I can ask for anything. And for some of us, that makes you very uncomfortable. But if you have children, you know that's how children work. Nothing's off the table. Why not? My daughter came to me yesterday and had a list of all the things she wants for her birthday, which was weeks ago already. And it was $400. She had found them all on Amazon and written down the prices. I said, well, thank you for the list. <laughs> but in her mind, why not ask? This is, the, this is childlike intimacy. That you would come to your father and say, why not? Why not, God? But at the same time, at the same time, intimacy in prayer is humble enough to surrender. See, our boldness is convinced of his goodness, but our humility is convinced of his greatness. It's convinced of his greatness. See, we honestly and boldly express our will. God, I want you to take this pain away from me. I want you to take away whatever's going on. I, I'm, I'm exhausted by it. I'm overwhelmed by it. I'm, I'm filled with grief over it. God, I need you to do something. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. God, I want you to heal my sister of what she's experiencing, but nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. God, I want you to, to transform the marriages that I'm seeing in my life that, that are falling apart. God, no, please do it right now. Don't let another one fall. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. 
Do you hear that? I mean, intimacy is this context of trust where you're saying, God, I, I trust you enough that I will ask you boldly, but I also trust you enough that you know what's best for me. I trust you enough that I'm going to ask boldly and then submit myself to you that your ways are not my ways because they're better. And your heart is not my heart because it's better. And your preferences are not my preferences because it's better. Do you hear that? But it takes intimacy for that. It takes intimacy to be able to ask God boldly and at the same time surrender humbly. So I want to ask you, which, which are you more afraid of in prayer? Which are you more afraid of in prayer, asking or surrendering? Because I think all of us at many different times in life, we struggle with both, right? But I would also say that for most of us, there's probably a pattern in our prayer life where we may struggle with one or the other more than the other one. Where if you struggle with asking, your prayer life, you can tell it's become cynical. You no longer ask God for big things. You no longer believe that God's going to answer your prayers. You no longer believe in faith that God can do the miraculous. You couldn't agree with Jesus that God can do the impossible. It's become fatalistic. Or on the opposite side, some of us are not uh, cynics. We're, we're opportunists in our prayer life, right? We're we, we, no longer, we, we don't know how to submit to God. We, we don't know how to be content with whatever he has for our life. We're, we're constantly trying to manipulate God into doing what we want and how we want and when we want. All these things. And, and so your prayer life is constantly manipulative. What are you more afraid of? Surrendering or asking? Because in both, in both, it takes intimacy. It takes the intimacy of trust to say, God, I'm, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you enough to ask. I'm going to trust you enough to surrender. So how do you get that kind of intimacy? How, how does God open up that intimacy in our life? Well, there's a cost to it. And this is the last point, the cost of prayer. Look at verse 37. It goes on. And he, Jesus, came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? I don't know if that's how Jesus said it, but that's how I'm saying it. Could you not watch one hour? This passage is famous because it's often, uh, it's often preached or, or taught that the disciples you know, failed to pray for Jesus. In his darkest moment, Jesus is just asking for you to pray for him for one hour, and you couldn't even do that. But if you look a little closer, Jesus actually doesn't say to pray for me. He says pray for yourself. He says, pray for yourself that you don't enter into temptation, right? So Jesus is is saying to them, there's something coming that you don't even realize how hard it's going to be. I want you to pray for yourself, and then I'm going to go pray for myself. So Jesus gives them an assignment, walks away, prays, comes back, and they're all asleep. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go back and pray. Let's try this again. Not twice. But three times he comes back, and they're sleeping. And, and I love Jesus' response. Uh, look at what he says the third time in verse 41. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The, the, the phrase there is, is kind of like this exhaustion. You just, you just throw your hands up. This, this is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. 
See, my betrayer is at hand. See, Jesus is starting to feel it now. The father won't remove the cup. The disciples can't stay awake. And now Judas is about to leave, or, or Judas is about to betray him because he left and went to find the Roman soldiers. And now they're coming into the garden, and Judas is going to identify Jesus for the guards, and he's going to give him the kiss of death. And when Judas gives him the kiss of death, it's the beginning of this scene where Mark from now on shows Jesus is alone for the entire rest of the gospel. Jesus is alone. Everyone abandons him. Everyone leaves him. No one wants to claim him. Peter's about to deny him. And now you start to understand why he's so stressed, why he's so, why he's so troubled, why Luke says in his gospel that Jesus at this point was sweating drops of blood because Jesus was about to face something all alone that's greater than death, greater than anyone has ever faced. See, in 1531, uh, there was a guy by the name of Thomas Bilney who was burned at the stake in England. And watching in the crowd while he was burned at the stake for his faith was a young Hugh Latimer. And Hugh Latimer saw this man being burned for his faith, and, and he said, there's got to be something about this guy's faith that would make him die for his faith. And so he said, i got to know what this is. Why would anyone die for their faith? And so he went away and, and studied and tried to figure out what this man believed, and he actually came to Christ out of that and then later became a bishop. And so Latimer is now a bishop, and uh, more and more folks are starting to get martyred during the reign of Queen Mary in England. And, uh, and one of those people was also Bishop Nicholas Ridley. And the two of them were famously burned at the stake together in 1555. And when they were burned at the stake, they looked at each other and they said this. They said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Today we shall light a flame in England that no one will be able to put out. Do you hear that? These, these two guys, these two bishops in the church who are being uh, persecuted for their faith are about to face burning at the stake and they say, be of good cheer. I mean, they're so calm, cool, collected, settled. How, how is that even possible? And then you go back in history even further down to Polycarp in the second century, who was a bishop of Smyrna. He was told that he is being uh, brought to the magistrate because he, he refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And so because he refused to burn incense, they're going to burn him. And they said, we're going to give you one last chance to recant your faith in Christ. And this is what Polycarp said to the magistrate. He said, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little while. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. What? You, you're going to be burned at the stake and you, you just seem so chill. Like you're so settled, you're so calm, you're about to face a horrific death. And if you go all throughout church history, many of the people who were martyred for their faith, many of the people died like this. Many of Jesus' followers died with this sense of confidence and faith in God that what they were doing was right and what they were doing was good. So why is that not Jesus in this scene? I mean, you think about it. It's, it's a little strange that Jesus' followers, followers would die with more confidence than Jesus himself. And here's Jesus at this scene, and Jesus is so unsettled. Jesus is so troubled. Jesus is so anxious. 
Why? Because Jesus knew he was facing more than mere death. He, Jesus, was facing more than physical life being lost. Jesus was facing something that no human being had ever faced, no human being ever could face. Jesus was about to face the cup of God's wrath that would be God's wrath for all his people, for all times and all places, all at once on one man. Jesus is about to face something that no one else had ever experienced and ever will experience again. Jesus is facing the full rejection of his father. Jesus is facing the full separation from God the Father that he had experienced all in our place. But that's the cost it would be. See, prayer's intimacy would require Jesus' rejection. Jesus would be rejected by Judas Iscariot. Then he'd be rejected by Peter three times. Then he'd be turned over to the crowds to be crucified, and they rejected him. Then he'd be mocked by the soldiers who then rejected him and nailed his hands and feet into the cross. But worst of all, worst of all, as Jesus hung by his arms on the cross on Calvary, he cried out to his father, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For all eternity, the son of God had been in intimate fellowship with his father. And it was broken. It was broken. Now, for the first time, there was distance. For the first time, there was a rejection. His face was turned away from Jesus. His voice was silent. His presence was gone. Jesus was being rejected all alone in the judgment that he was taking for our place. But this was the costly cup. This was the cup that he would drink. But it's because he was rejected, we're accepted. Because he was cast out, we're brought in. Because he was ignored, we are heard. Because he's lost intimacy, we gained intimacy. This is the gospel that he would take our place, right? We're no longer outsiders of the stadium looking in, hoping to be close. We are insiders. We are in with full access, full intimacy to ask boldly in our pain, to surrender boldly in our pain, full intimacy to know confidently that our God is both good and great, no matter what we face, because he's already proved it in Christ. He's already proved it in Christ. And so the question with this kind of intimacy is, will you bring your pain to God in prayer? Will you bring it to him? Because Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he he is making intimacy possible. By him being cast out, he's saying you can be brought in. And when you're brought in, you're brought in with all your struggles, all your pain, all your worries and anxieties and fears, everything that you are feeling, everything that you are experiencing, all your failures. He says, Bring it in. Bring it to me. See, the glory of the gospel is that you have such an intimacy in Jesus that's available to you that there's nothing that can separate you. There is no more separation. You're you're brought in so close that all the brokenhearted pain you feel, all the, the shame and guilt over your sin, Jesus says, I've died for that too. I've made a way for that too. And you can bring it. Bring it straight to me. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, as we bring our pain to you in prayer, there's so much we can't even describe. 
Sometimes we are lost without words because sometimes we don't even understand why we suffer or how we suffer or what it's done to us. And so God, we, at the very least, we just bring ourselves to you and we ask that you would sort it out, sort out the mess that makes up our life, sort out the pains and the struggles and the difficulties, the failures, the sin, all of it. But we bring it to you boldly asking that you would heal us. Boldly asking that you would transform our hearts, our minds, and yet humbly saying, do what you will. Make it on your own time. Make it in your own way. Make it for your own glory and our good. We trust you. We trust you because of who you are and what you've done for us. You are a trustworthy God. A trustworthy God who's given up all to have us come in. That's a God we can trust. So Lord, we pray today for our hearts to be renewed in the good news that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet.